1: I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details.
0: Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast, How Rude, Tanneritos. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I bet you're smart.
1: Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Hey y'all, Eves here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. One from me and one from former host Tracy V. Wilson. On with the show.
2: Welcome to the day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's October 19th. Members of the military attacked the National Palace in Guatemala on this day in 1944 during the Guatemalan Revolution. This revolution had started earlier in 1944 as students and young military officers rose up against President Jorge Ubico. He had been elected president in 1931 and his early presidency had included a campaign against government corruption improvements to public health, an overhaul of Guatemala's infrastructure, and helping to stabilize the country's economy. But by 1944, he had gotten rid of all political opposition, and he was governing as a military dictator. His policies had also increasingly favored elite landowners and corporations, especially the U.S.-based United Fruit Company, which owned a lot of the arable land in Guatemala but wasn't actually using most of that land. Meaning it wasn't available for anyone else to use either. He had also implemented things like Decree 1816, which exempted landowners from prosecution if they used violence to defend their land, up to and including murdering someone. He had also abolished a series of forced labor laws, but then replaced them with vagrancy laws that were very similar, and these really amounted to indentured servitude. In a lot of cases, the so-called vagrants who were being forced to work were from Guatemala's Maya peoples. Ubico also developed close ties with the United States, and the United States was providing Guatemala with armaments and with favorable tariff terms. This whole situation, though, was not unique at all to Guatemala. Other nations in Central America had very similarly unyielding dictators and control with similar social and economic effects, similar reliance on one food crop for most of the economy, similar connections to the United States and United States based business interests, and one Dictator Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez was overthrown in neighboring El Salvador in 1944. This overthrow became an inspiration for a similar campaign against Ubico in Guatemala, not just inspiring the students and other young people to rise up, but also inspiring in Ubico a fear that the same thing might happen to him. So he cracked down on civil liberties. He put people who were loyal to him in charge of the university. He basically tried to do what he could to ensure his own power. This had the opposite effect of what he wanted. A series of protests followed with students at San Carlos University petitioning for changes to the university teaching staff and other reforms. Lawyers were petitioning for biased judges to be removed from the bench. Teachers were demonstrating for pay increases. And all these initial demonstrations were nonviolent. They included things like boycotts and strikes. The Guatemalan government responded to all this by deploying tanks and troops and using tear gas on the demonstrators, placing the capital under martial law. But the demonstrations spread, even as the government was placing participants under surveillance and deporting foreign supporters of the movement. Finally, at the end of June, tens of thousands of demonstrators were gathered at the capital, and Obico's support was really eroding. He resigned on July 1, 1944, and placed the government under the control of a military triumvirate, although he allegedly remained in charge. The National Assembly elected one of the triumvirate, General Frederico Ponce Vitas, president. He promised that a free election was going to follow, but by October, it was obvious that it just was not going to happen, and Guatemala was sliding farther and farther away from democracy. The protests continued. Students and teachers called for a general strike on October 16th. Students and members of the military began taking control of the Capitol on October 18th. There was an attack on the National Palace by members of the military, as I said at the top of the show, on October 19th. Violence spread through the Capitol, the presidential guard rebelled, and the general finally surrendered on the 20th. This didn't put a total end to the violence or the unrest, but... New elections did follow in December, and they were one of the freest elections that Guatemala had seen in decades. A new constitution was drafted in 1945. This constitutional rule lasted for just less than a decade, before President Jacobo Arbenz was elected in 1951, and he had been part of the revolution. He instituted a lot of land reforms, including redistributed a. lot of that unused land that United Fruit Company had been buying up. The United States didn't like that. The United States was also threatened by the fact that he legalized the Communist Party in Guatemala. So so the CIA helped overthrow the democratically elected government of Guatemala in 1954. Thanks to Jeff Jeffcoat for her research work on today's podcast and Tari Harrison for her audio work on this show. You can subscribe to this Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a political purge.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought...
0: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Eve, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was October 19th, 1909. French nuclear chemist and physicist Marguerite Perret was born in Villemomble, France, a suburb northeast of Paris. Perret is known for discovering Francium, the 87th element of the periodic table, and being the first woman elected to the French Academy of Sciences. Perret was born into a middle-class Protestant family. As a child, she took an interest in science and wanted to study medicine. But her father died in 1914, leaving her mom to take care of her and her four siblings. Her mother gave piano lessons, but the family still faced financial hardship, and Marguerite could not go to a university. She did, however, attend L'Ecole l'enseignement Technique Féminine, a school for female technicians. Her education there qualified her to become a chemistry technician. And after she completed her studies, she became a lab assistant at the Radium Institute in Paris, where physicist and Nobel Prize winner Marie Curie was director. Curie acted as a mentor to Perret. Radioactivity was the focus of Perret's work. Her job was to purify actinium, a radioactive element that was discovered in 1899 by chemist André Debien. Perret was skilled when it came to preparing radioactive sources and she eventually became Curie's personal assistant. After Curie died in 1934, André Debierne became the director of the institute and Perret continued researching the properties of actinium. She also studied the spectrum of the radioactive elements barium and strontium. By this time, Perret's work in radiochemistry was well-recognized by others in her field. But the discovery she's best remembered for happened in 1938. Scientists were trying to find element 87 on the periodic table, one of just a few elements that they thought were missing from the periodic table. In her research, Perret realized that the actinium she had purified was emitting unexpected radiation. After a series of tests, she came to the conclusion that she had discovered a new element one that was predicted by Dmitri Mendeleev's periodic table. It was element 87 with an atomic weight of 223. She initially called the element actinium K, but it was later renamed francium after her home country. Jean Perrin announced the discovery to the French Academy of Sciences in early January 1939. Perrin began working on the chemical and nuclear properties of francium and studying artificial radioactivity, She got a grant to study at the Sorbonne in Paris, and in 1946, she got her doctorate of physics. Perret went on to work at France's National Center for Scientific Research, and she studied the biological effects of Francium at the University of Strasbourg, where she was made head of the Department of Nuclear Chemistry in 1949. By the late 1950s, a nuclear chemistry lab she directed at Strasbourg had become part of a larger nuclear research facility. In 1962, she was elected as the first female corresponding member of the French Academy of Sciences. She remained head of her lab in Strasbourg until her death. In her last years, she continued to receive awards and the press recognized her as a notable scientist. Unfortunately, her story was also a cautionary tale about safety measures that are necessary when working with radiation. Perret was diagnosed with cancer in the 1960s. After years of dealing with that diagnosis, which was a result of her prolonged exposure to radiation, she died in France in May of 1975. I'm Yves Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Feel free to share your thoughts or your innermost feelings with us and with other listeners on social media at TDIHC Podcast. If email's your thing, send us a note at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We'll see you again tomorrow. work.